Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to the second episode of this podcast. My apologies for the long delay between episode recordings. Um, The end of the year always gets a little bit away from most of us and I was one of those people who had a December that Decembered. It felt like a very short month um, with a lot of things to do and you know, to prepare for into the coming year. So my apologies for my silence over that month. Um, I also had some really interesting experiences. Um, I was part of a podcast um, group um, that met in the first week, first or second week of December, and that was a really great experience. Um, Shout out to... DW Academy and the Namibia Media Trust for um, putting together a really great event of podcasters um, and um, for teaching us a lot of different things that I didn't know personally as a podcaster in the making. Um, So firstly, before I get into my topic for the day, I would like to wish you a happy 2023. I hope that this first week of the year has been treating you kindly. Um, I hope that the December hangover has lifted somewhat. It's always really difficult to get into a new month and a new year um, after a month like December, which is so laid back and so relaxing and kind of really taking everything a notch down. And then January comes along and then, you know, there's all these, I guess, expectations that we are just going to shift overnight into these new people, which I always find very interesting. It's almost like sometimes we do set ourselves up um, with really high expectations. So I just hope that you're taking it really nice and slow and that you're being kind to yourself and trusting that the process will become clearer um, as the months and the weeks and the days unfold. So when I thought about what to talk about in this episode, I think one thing that was really interesting for me was how to bridge um, the conversations about where digital and social media are going uh, from what we've seen in 2022, 2022 sounds so, so, so uh, formal, 2022. But yes, what we saw in 2022 and what we think we'll see in 2023 or 2023. I think what was really interesting for me um, as, a, as a follower and as an observer of the social media space was the different shifts and the dynamics that were happening um, over different platforms and different companies. So I think um, one that's been really interesting over the last year or so to watch is obviously Facebook and Meta uh, and where they're going as a company and where their social media platforms are going. I think uh, it's safe to say that Facebook as a platform itself is 
stagnating. It was once upon a time the biggest platform. Still probably is. I haven't checked data, but I would like to believe that Facebook still has the most number of users and accounts of all social media platforms. But that that dynamic is likely to stagnate and start to recede over time as the demographic of users of Facebook becomes millennials, Gen X, and older generations of social media users who are not growing as a market or as a target. And then you have Gen Z, who is not really using Facebook at all, more likely to be found on platforms like TikTok, which I think one thing that was really interesting that came up last year was around how Gen Z users TikTok, at least American Gen Z TikTokers, are using it as a search engine. And so TikTok is starting to even replace the conventional search engines like Google. Um, and, and younger people are starting to find their information off of these social media platforms, but also not really using them to engage in the kinds of community that older users use them to, 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 to actually um, reach out to people and have access to information about people that they grew up with or people that they've known in, in, in university or college or, or worked with briefly, which was one of the big things about Facebook and how people were using it to find people that they'd lost track of over time. So I find all these conversations really interesting. They, they, they beg the question, where are we going with social media and how will these platforms survive um, in a time when there's a very big generational shift? Uh, younger users are not using social media in the same way that older users were using social media. Uh, but then one thing that I find really interesting and the place that I want to zero in on for this uh, episode is around Twitter and I guess WhatsApp in some sort of way, uh, because Twitter has had this really interesting life as a social media platform. It was never really the foremost runner, but I think we can safely say that Twitter has always been the most important social media platform for um, conversations around information sharing, news, and those kinds of dynamics of, um, of socia sociality, I guess, uh, where people are really trying to put information and news and ideas out there. And obviously with uh, the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk last year, there's been a whole lot of conversations around whether Twitter will survive. Will Twitter still be a viable space and platform for people to engage in the ways that they used to previously? And that obviously has a lot to do with the politics around Elon Musk um, and his uh, very clear values and politics that he brings to the space. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, information around uh, people's, the, the staffing within Twitter changing drastically. Um, and then you see a lot of people who are, I think we'd identify them as progressives, feeling a need to pull away from 
Twitter because of Musk's presence and his policies and, and what those could could mean for Twitter as a shifting space um, in terms of freedom of expression and, and certain things that uh, may become controversial and have been controversial actually over the last few months of this, this shift. And one thing that I found really interesting uh, and one thing that I'm really interested to look at more closely is what is to become of spaces and communities like Twitter community spaces such as Black Twitter. I mean, Black Twitter is one of the most vibrant Twitter communities and it has been going for many years. It's, you know, bringing together the dynamics of Black culture, particularly from an African-American space and perspective, uh, and, and using that space to augment a voice in activism, but also in terms of culture and entertainment. And so I found it really interesting because I think like many people, I watched the Harry and Meghan Netflix documentary in December. And one of the things that um, I've been reading or coming across on Twitter is how Black Twitter has either responded to the documentary or responded to Prince Harry's upcoming memoir. And I, I, I was on Twitter yesterday, actually, and I saw this tweet and I actually went to it to to the account to get a sense of who this user was, because I don't know this user, but it kind of came onto my feed from someone else's retweet. And it was it was this it had a photo of Prince Harry and Meghan and it had this uh quote from I mean it's not a real quote from his book because that has what that is what has been happening over the last week is that a lot of quotes or information from the book has been leaking to the public and you know there have been little teasers about it but this one said something to the effect that um, ever since Harry discovered that Meghan sleeps in a silk bonnet he's wanted to be I don't know, something like he wants his integrity to be as close as her hair is to that bonnet or something like that. And I mean, obviously, it's a play on the kinds of information that have been leaking to the public about what the, what is in the memoir. But I kind of followed the tweet and, you know, a lot of people, some people actually believed it was true. And then other people were like, oh, this is, you know, this is epic. This is, you know, a black Twitter gold. And so I went to this follower and then I, I realized that the, there was a whole article that had come out about how Black Twitter was now remixing a lot of um, the, the, the scandal that surrounds the launch of this book. And I thought, oh, you know, it's really interesting that I, I'm really glad, actually, that Black Twitter is still alive and thriving in this way. I didn't expect it to just kind of collapse onto itself and stop existing simply because there has been a change of ownership of Twitter. But, you know, it was really interesting for me that, oh, you know, like these things are still happening. People are still converging around spaces like Twitter to have these kinds of conversations and to um, bring their own cultural expression and resistances to the space. And it's, it's something that I've been thinking about 
in a greater dynamic of how we tend, well, not we, I'm not sure who I mean by we, but how conversations around the fall and collapse of social media platforms are always framed or largely framed from a very Western user perspective. So I obviously engage quite a lot with the social media space. And when everything started to go a little bit left with Twitter, I mean, we we went from, I think the initial time that Elon Musk said that he would make the purchase and then he kind of withdrew and then there was a legal process and then he eventually chose to purchase it again. Well, was I think forced to purchase it again. Um, and you know, all the different dynamics that started happening thereafter. And, and then, you know, a lot of people saying we cannot be using a platform that is owned by a person whose, um, politics and values do not tally with our own. And so I think one of the big platforms that people started to migrate to was Mastodon. And I, I joined Mastodon just to get a sense of what happens there. But I think in the back of my mind was always the idea that, well, you know, this is a very American-centric conversation. And no doubt, a lot of these social media platforms are headquartered in the United States and in the West in general. But I did wonder... Okay, so if there's this mass exodus of people with a very um, Western idea about how these social media platforms work and a very, you know, a very conscious idea of who owns which platforms and why and how and how that affects uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech and other principles and values. But I always in my in the back of my mind was thinking, oh, well, is a user who has no other space and platform to express their views and opinions and create community, is, is a user of that nature going to uphold the same politics that a user who has different options for building community and for having communal spaces, are they going to have the same idea about leaving a space? And I asked this from a perspective um, of, a, of being a Zimbabwean, of being an African, and seeing how Zimbabweans, Africans have adopted these different social media spaces to augment causes and voices around causes. We saw this very clearly, for instance, 2020 um, and SARS as a hashtag that um, was used to uh, propel a lot of information around the Nigerian, um, I think it's their intelligence service or their police unit that was committing a lot of atrocities and brutalities against citizens. And that, that became a rallying call for a lot of people to get information out about what was going on. But it also became a rallying call for Nigerians in the Nigerian diaspora to to band together and to put resources forward 
um, in, in a way to, to have the solidarity. And, you know, again, I think 2020 was this very interesting year with the pandemic and with a lot of limited mobilities that enabled a lot of people to, to engage in a different way, no, not in a different way, but had to find ways to engage, to, to rally around causes. Another hashtag that developed at that time was Zimbabwean Lives Matter. Um, I think another one which may have been going before this time was the end Anglophone crisis. Um, and that's a Cameroonian hashtag that I also saw start to get really big at that time. Um, I think another one was, I'm not too sure what the hashtag was anymore, but then there was one in South Africa around the killings of South African women because there was a spate of these horrible murders of women and there's been a spate of them for a long time. Um, just a really terrible situation there. And, and, and I remember a lot of people tweeting and using multiple hashtags. So they'd be end Anglophone crisis, Zimbabwean lives matter, and SARS. Um, and, uh, you know, they're just finding ways to show these solidarities across spaces and across causes. And so Twitter for me still is this really big, important space when people want to organize uh, and converge around issues and create community and um, build spaces of resistance, resilience, um, and, and to speak back to the powers that be. And so I ask myself, well, in a con on a continent like Africa, and I'm sure um, in other areas of the global south, this would relate and resonate as well. In spaces where the politics of the space, you know, the, the actual politics of the environment is so overwhelmingly uh, different to the politics of the West, if that politics does not take precedence over the politics of ownership. Because it's almost, and I, I don't say this to discount Western ideas about um, the importance of certain things, but you know, it's almost that you have to have a certain kind of luxury or comfort within your political context to be able to say, well, in the context of the ownership of a company such as Twitter, Facebook, I choose not to put my voice there because I don't have to. And that's not to say that Western politics is perfect. That's far from it. I think we see it time and time again that there are all these kinds of issues that people in the West are fighting too. But it's, it's a very different dynamic when you have, firstly, this other spaces that you can go to. And secondly, functional democracies of some sort that enable you to not have to use these platforms and spaces in the same way that people who do not have to. And so I've been trying to find this space where this conversation is happening, but I don't see it happening. I don't find that there is a lot of information or conversation around how non-Western users are reading 
these shifts in the social media terrain that we are experiencing? Are non-Western users as committed to moving to Mastodon as you know Western users are? Would, would that make as much sense to a person who has a very limited space to create community as it does to someone else who's like, well, you know, and I think the way Mastodon was, is working is servers. People are creating these different servers where people follow different conversations. And so the work that people have done to con- congregate and converge around spaces like Twitter seems almost impossible to start again with on a different platform. And so I'm very curious for these kinds of conversations to start to happen and to emerge. And I think also then the question is, well, the demographics of these non-Western users, are they big enough to sustain these platforms? So say, you know, in a hypothetical way, if every Western user of Twitter just gave up and said, I'm done, I'm not following this thing anymore, not everyone, that's never going to happen because I think there are very different camps of thought around freedom of speech and expression. So you will always find people who would stay. And there's also people who just also are indifferent about who owns what and they're more using these spaces for their own um, personal leveraging. But let's say if 75 to 80% of Twitter users in the West were to leave the platform how many of the users that are not Western, non-Westerners, and again, this is not to say that non-Western users are not also complex users. Some people would stay on the platform, some people would leave. But let's just say if 85% of non-Western users stayed on the platform and only 15% of Western users did, what would that demographic be? And would it still make the spaces viable in the ways that they've been viable in the past? So I think it's all these kinds of things that really interest me as a social media user and coming in from a perspective that is not Western-centric to ask myself all these questions and to start to have these conversations in, in the hopes that other people are also thinking these things and trying to find ways to make the conversation a little bit more nuanced because I think what we tend to see is a very um, a very clear side of a conversation that is far more complex um, when we try to unpack it. You know, there's elections coming up, for instance, in Zimbabwe in 2023, and I can't imagine uh, all the users who are very vocal on Twitter saying, oh, well, you know, there's all these issues with whatever is going on with ownership patterns. So we need to leave Twitter and join Mastodon and start all our work all over again there and try to get conversations going about voter registration and voter education. So some of those practicalities just have to come into play. And you're just asking yourself, who who is the conversation about the exodus of platforms for? Does it include non-Western users? Do we matter enough? And do the nuances we bring to the conversation matter enough? Um, I think, you know, a final thought on this 
also goes to the conversation last year around WhatsApp. And this is where I, I said I would bring very briefly in um, a conversation thread about WhatsApp. Um, I think what WhatsApp went through last year was, if I'm not mistaken, this is off the top of my head, but it was a change in the privacy policies about WhatsApp and data. And a lot of people had this conversation about, well, am I comfortable with WhatsApp having access to my data or storing it or something like that? And, you know, some people left WhatsApp. Some people decided it wasn't worth it. It's not worth one company, that company being Meta, having access to so many different strands of our com- of our conversations and our information from WhatsApp to Facebook to Instagram. And I, I know people who actually left uh, WhatsApp. But again, the conversation came down to, well, can I actually leave WhatsApp? Like, would that make sense? as me, Fungai, to leave WhatsApp. So the thing is, for a lot of us, we may have a political stance in a certain direction, but then we come from a context where you have to weigh out your politics with the communal aspects of life. I could decide that, you know, it's a political statement that I do not want my data protected, not protected, but stored or used in a certain way but the truth of the matter is most of the people that I engage with who don't use any other social media platform are using WhatsApp. Now I'm a very interesting person because I resisted joining WhatsApp until I think 2016 so I kind of went two or so years without WhatsApp but I had to get into WhatsApp because Everybody was using it and it's really expensive to expect people to send you an SMS each time because you're not on WhatsApp. And so I had to give in to the communal needs of WhatsApp over my personal ideas about it because I generally did not want to be on WhatsApp. And once you're in that space, it's a really harder thing to navigate your own personal politics because you are there essentially for other people and for the communal exchanges that it facilitates, that a, that a platform facilitates. And so going to those conversations about data protection, data privacy and the like, when you have to make those, those decisions based on the fact that you are part of a community of people who are not moving with you into the different social media spaces that you are moving into, it's highly unlikely that you are going to leave that platform or those platforms. You are likely to have to make a decision to keep your communal um, interests and commitments going over your personal politics. And so again, that, that's another very interesting place for me where, where, we, where is the conversation around people for whom spaces like WhatsApp are not an add-on. You know, they're not, they're not like one of an option of many different spaces that we can converge and congregate. They are the only space. And where do we situate 
the conversation around people not being able to effect a similar politics to ourselves because they need those spaces in a very different way to ourselves. WhatsApp, um, another layer of WhatsApp is that on the African continent particularly, and I can only speak for the African continent because I'm African, um, it, WhatsApp is more than just a communication tool. It's it's where people, it's a marketplace. If if you ever try to find an online store, not ever, some online stores work differently, but the bulk of online stores that I've engaged with, doesn't matter which country they're in, you will find either an Instagram or a Facebook page, which has uh, which is linked to a WhatsApp business account. And so in that way, WhatsApp is not just about communication. It's about money. It's about making a living. And so people who are using a space in that way and are using it well enough to make a living, there is just no way that unfortunately, or you know, fortunately or unfortunately, however, however you look at it, that a person who is using that space in that way is going to think about making a, a political decision in the way that someone else might because they need that space for a very different need. They need it to survive. So they don't have the option to, oh, I'm dropping WhatsApp and I'm going to join Telegram or I'm dropping WhatsApp and I'm just taking everything um, to, I don't know, Viber or somewhere else. It's just the, the, the admin of creating a new community and of getting yourself together in that way. It's just, it's just a, a little bit too much for most of most people who are using these spaces to imagine. And like their market is not there either. Their target is not there. They're going to have to build new targets. And who wants to do that? Especially when you are in a context of survival, you're trying to make ends meet. You're trying to just get things together every single day. So for me, these are all interesting things that I think about constantly. And I try to figure out where they fit in these bigger conversations. And I never really see these things coming up in the ways that I would imagine they would. Um, and, and, and my question is always, Why? Uh, or how does that happen? How does it happen that users who obviously constitute such a big, such a big proportion of the user base are not considered in these ways? Their, their motivations are not thought through. They're not nuanced in a way that brings them to the conversation. Because these are not just like a handful of people. There's so many users across different contexts who are elevating the uses of these social media platforms, but they're never really talked about. Their, their motivations and their demotivations are never really talked about or nuanced or unpacked. So I just thought to start as I uh, intend to proceed in the new year, and I think this is what my podcast really tries to look at is to bring in these African perspectives on social media um, that are often overlooked and marginalized and to ask these questions around, well, where, where is this conversation about these people in this greater scheme 
of how these social media platforms um, work and grow. So that's my little food for thought for today. I hope that it's been as enriching and engaging to you as it has been to me. Um, And I look forward to talking to you the next time. Until then, take care of yourselves and be well.